launching a food brand and obtaining national distribution with top retailers is hard enough. But imagine doing all that with a product derived from fruit that would otherwise just be thrown away. The only source of fruit coming through our plant is fruit that's being thrown out. That's Ben Moore, founder of The Ugly Company. Ben is a farmer and a military veteran who made frequent trips to dispose of thousands of pounds of fruit that was perfectly edible, but not up to standard for retail supply chains. This opened his eyes to both waste and opportunity. And, you know, I thought, well, that's that's about 150 tons of fruit right there. You know, wouldn't it be nice if somebody could have that fruit, eat that fruit? Ben is laser focused on taking actions and providing real solutions. He knows there's a lot of logistical reasons why food gets lost or wasted, and he's relying on his ability to roll up his sleeves and execute to make the ugly company successful. I'm a farmer, but I was also a military guy. I'm an infantry guy, so you know, just define perfection and then work back from there and then get to the point where something is simple enough where it can be, can be tried and solved. I mean, you can execute at a very high level rather than have all the bells and whistles attached and, and it just not be executed very well. Ben Moore sits down to talk food waste and building a retail brand with guest co-host Jennifer Barney on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take just a moment to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor for this quarter, which is Acres. Name a place, a single source where you can find land for sale, comparable sales, and easy-to-use maps. Can't do it? Well, that's where Acres comes in. This land analysis and mapping platform brings together the data you need to make confident decisions about buying, selling, or investing in a piece of land. That includes manually vetted comparable sales, soil data, crop history, elevation, flood insights, and more. There's no paywall. You can create a free account today at acres.co and access 10 plus layers of data along with land listings, tools for saving and customizing maps, and PDF report generation. I've hopped on there myself. It's really, really cool. If you're in the land business and need more than just the basics, check out their premium and enterprise plans for features that support efficient due diligence, portfolio management, and fast valuations. It's all part of Acres' mission to make the land marketplace transparent and easy to access for anyone. You should also check out episode 344 with Dr. Aaron Shu from Acres to learn more. And stay tuned to the end of this episode for a profile of someone who uses the Acres tool on a daily basis. Check out a parcel anywhere in the U.S. for free at acres.co. That's acres.co. Thank you so much to Acres for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Ben Moore of The Ugly Company. This story was actually put together by my guest co-host for today's episode, Jennifer Barney. Jennifer is back to co-host her fourth episode now after the first three last year, which included Tefola, Seal the Seasons, and Neutral Foods. She's a consumer packaged goods or CPG expert who lives in the Central Valley of California and got her start in the food industry 16 years ago when she founded the almond butter brand Barney Butter. 
I find her food industry background and entrepreneurial experience really, really valuable to bring onto the show whenever I can. And I also never miss an edition of her weekly newsletter, which is called The Business of Food. You can subscribe to that at jenniferbarney.substack.com or simply click the link that I will include in the show notes. But Jennifer, welcome back to co-host another episode. Hey, Tim. Glad to be here again. Thanks again. Well, thank you. I mean, you've put together some fantastic interviews and another one here today uh, on a topic that I really care about, but I always struggle with like how to cover, which is food loss and waste, because it's such a massive problem that no one solution is going to solve it all. But uh, it's sometimes hard to find like solutions that are actually making progress. But I think we have one of those here today. So why don't you uh, tell everybody who you interviewed and kind of how you came across this story? Yeah, so I spoke with the CEO of a company called The Ugly Company, Ben Moore. He is originally from a farming family in Central California, and he had left and gone to school, got his MBA, came back from that, went into the military, came back to the farm, and he identified a problem on the farm. And that is that a lot of fruit, particularly stone fruit, in his case, gets either sent to a feedlot or just is food waste. And he sought out to figure out how he could solve that problem. So he spent a good chunk of his money to investigate some startup ideas. And he came up with dehydrating the fruit and and doing a dried fruit company. So the ugly fruit is the brand. And uh, I got to talk to Ben all about his startup experience, the ups and downs of starting a food company, being a farmer and leveraging those relationships with other producers that have fruit in the field that for one reason or another doesn't make it through the value chain, but is perfectly good to eat. So it was a really great interview. I really enjoyed speaking with Ben. Very cool. There's certainly a sustainability story here, but also one of adding value to uh, the farm level, which is really cool. Well, I know there's been some updates because you interviewed him back in September and uh, due to a backlog on my end, you know, we're releasing this now in January. Maybe talk about uh, some of the updates that have happened since you talked to Ben. Yeah. So Ben, at the time that I spoke with him in September, was very active in his Series A financing round. And there was a lot of stress at the time when I was speaking with him because he wanted to partially finance the move to a a larger facility in order to scale his growth. He had just gotten into Kroger. He was part of the um, Go Local Accelerator at Kroger. So in order to fulfill his growth, he really needed to close his round. So he has done so. Um, So that's a big accomplishment and win for him. And then in addition, he's gotten into Sprouts stores. So Kroger and Sprouts, those are big retailers to get into for uh, an emerging brand. So we're really you know, happy for Ben at Ugly that he has those wins. Very cool. Well, here, let's uh, let's hear more from Ben Moore, the founder and CEO of The Ugly Company. Back in 2017, I'd gotten out of the Army, I think about 2014. When I first got out of the Army, I went to drive a truck for a company in Fresno, heavy haul and bulldozers and excavators and things like that. Uh, but my dad, in addition to our farm, he also had a little trucking company hauling compost and manure. They would also haul fruit coals from the packing sheds, and they would take those to dairies, um, and he would kind of you know trade that for manure, uh, and then haul the manure back to growers or make compost out of it himself, or you know use it for his own fields. So I had started a little trucking company as well, hauling um, 
base rock and asphalt grinding, some different aggregates and things like that and, and bottom dumps. And uh, when my dad, when, when he would get backed up with his loads, I would pitch in from time to time or, you know, if he was out of town or whatever it may be, but, you know, I'd help him cover down on those, those loads of fruit. So when I was a kid, all that fruit was dumped at dairies right around Kingsburg. There's, there's several kind of small little dairies around the area. But at the time, all of those small dairies around Kingsburg had, had basically closed down and the cows had moved north and south, essentially, and consolidated to larger dairies. And right when I got out of the army, the economics of it have changed a little bit with, with the drought and the things going on in Ukraine. But the cost to truck this fruit farther down to Visalia or to the next closest dairy really wasn't worth the commodity in the trailers, you know, so there wasn't an extreme need for stone fruit coals for cow feed at the time, uh, whereas now it's used a little bit more because of the, the feed shortages and prices and stuff like that. But anyway, so, so there was that week during the summer of 2017 when there was a hurricane in Houston and, uh, you know, the FEMA response was pretty satisfactory. You know, there was, there wasn't a you know, huge loss of life. It was a lot of property damage, but overall, you know, the disaster response went pretty well. And I think it was like a week or 10 days later, maybe there was a, another hurricane in Puerto Rico and, you know, the news kind of starts trickling in that, Hey, people don't have food. People don't have water. There's no electricity. Uh, and FEMA is relatively tapped out on resources. The ports and everything were so damaged that, you, you know, there, there was such a backlog offloading things at the ports that all these people were kind of stranded there without resources. Right. And so I remember, you know, that happening and then, you know, kind of art of these articles start trickling in that there was contractors that were working with FEMA that were supposed to be able to provide, you know, meals and, and ready to go meals and stuff, you know, when, when FEMA needed them. And it kind of turned out a lot of these companies just weren't able to do it because they're relying on a lot of the same supply chain and things like that. And so when everybody needed them at once, they just weren't able to deliver. And so I kind of had that, that moment where I was like, well, you know, we just dumped out six truckloads of fruit ourselves. And since we're not taking them to dairies anymore, we're just dumping them out in open fields at this point or, or wherever is cheapest for the grower to, to dump it. And, you know, I thought, well, that's, that's about 150 tons of fruit right there. You know, wouldn't it be nice if somebody could have that fruit to eat that fruit, essentially, you know, it, it's all, it's all edible fruit in some form or another, you know, about probably about half of it, the fruit has cosmetic issues. The other half has some shelf stability issues or if it's bruised or it's, you know, a little bit overripe, et cetera. It's kind of that moment of, well, you know, this, this really is kind of a sad thing, right? When we have an overabundance of a resource in our area and there's a shortage in another area, something should be figured out to get people fruit. So that's kind of where it all started. That's awesome. So ugly fruit is a dehydrated fruit brand, right? This isn't freeze dried fruit. Is it sun dried or is it dehydrated? Yeah. So all the, all of our products right now are dehydrated. Like there's, there's no added ingredients, no added sugars. It's, you know, literally just wash and pit the fruit de-sticker it if there's a sticker on it and then you know slice it and dry it essentially so just yeah warm air blowing over it kind of like a seventh grade science experiment done at a very very industrial level i remember those dehydrators they were so loud walk me through you made a decision to invest in creating your own manufacturing and creating your brand so let's start with what happens when you bring fruit in from the field what are your current operations you mentioned that you're um, investing in a new production plant what's going on with that talk to me a little bit about your infrastructure and, and maybe how your organization is structured yeah so originally when i started the company we worked with an outside processor to you know cut and dry the fruit that i was bringing in from the packing shed and at the time, it was kind of experimental. Hey, is it, you know, I don't want to spend $10 million building up a processing <laughs> operation if, if uh, there's kind of an existing option to test the market with. So that was four years ago. 
we just bought a, a plant. It was a prune dehydrating plant down in Farmersville, and we're spending about $11 million total completely retrofitting that plant. And something I, I've seen, having been to every place that dries fruit essentially in the valley, they're, they're not necessarily the most technologically advanced manufacturing operations. Having been a raisin grower, right, I've seen how it works. And, it, and a lot of these operations really haven't changed in the last 40 years. And there's, you know, they're running the playbook that's worked for them and that's fine. But um, I really forward looking and am looking at manufacturing in California has to be very energy efficient um, and it has to be very people efficient as well because our lowest paid employee costs about $23 an hour with our all-in costs. So the way our operation is structured now, uh, we haven't fully brought our processing in-house, but by next spring, everything we produce will be completely done in-house. And I decided to make that investment because there was two, two real concerns for me with the existing options. The number one thing was, was product capacity. So the, the ability to produce and scale this brand, that's been kind of our Achilles heel as a brand so far, is we can't process and produce enough fruit to really grow, to put the full force behind this brand and to grow it. So there's just a bottleneck um, and the, the tunnel's devoted to dry fruit at the quality that I need. Number two is, is from a cost structure with the way these manufacturing plants run, there's just too many people involved in making the fruit and the, the batches aren't big enough, your throughput's not big enough. And so our cost structure is nowhere competitive to a raisin at the moment. Um, and really that, that ends up affecting the grower on, we lose all the value for what that we could be paid to the grower and in inefficient manufacturing essentially. So those, those are the two main things and also product quality. I wanted to have much more control over the configuration of our product and the different things we were doing. You're just very limited when you're working with another processor on what they can do and what they won't do. And you know, I've had some of these conversations and the owners of the company just say, no, we can't do that. It's not possible. I said, well, no, I, I guarantee it's possible. It just doesn't matter how much money you want to spend on making it possible is really what possible means, right? So, so yeah, I just made the decision to say, hey, we want better control over our product quality. We want to be able to produce more product at a, at a better margin. So let's just bring it all in-house. And that's something, you know, my background is not in CPG. It's not in sales. It's, it's in, you know, agriculture <laughs> and machines and, and trucks and things like that. So you know, running a plant is, is very normal for my wheelhouse of things, whereas the other side of it was very difficult for me. It was not in my wheelhouse. But um, so, yeah, I mean, essentially, we take fruit from packing sheds um, that's been sorted out from a th fruit that's going to the grocery store. It's handled at the same hygienic level that it was handled as if, as if it was going in, into a box to the grocery store. So there's definitely, we can't work with every packing shed because not every packing shed is set up to handle the fruit in the way that we, that we need hygienically. Anyway, so we take it basically in our macro 26 bins down to our plant, put it in cold storage, essentially just wash it, pit it, cut it and, and, and dry it. Then the fruit can sit in cold storage for several years at a very low moisture content, so about 8%. Um, and then from there, when our, we get orders in or we, you know, we're, as we're forecasting our inventory, we pull that back out of cold storage, do some quality control and then rehydrate the fruit a little bit. And then we, then we pack it in our bags, essentially. Wow, that is quite an operation. Um, I'm sure you've learned a lot along the way. I mean, all of that stuff, you made it sound really simple, but it's super important and very, I think, complex going from where a grower and a packing shed is going into just one vertical or one channel. You know, they, they do the grading and they meet a certain specification to now, you know, this has multiple steps and multiple layers. And you have to worry when it's going into your bag with your brand name on it, 
and you have to worry about food safety all the way to the consumer. How has that, I guess, entered into your SOP or in terms of what you've had to learn or what you've had to do in being a consumer brand versus a supplier to another step in the in the chain? Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. Like I said, I mean, what you brought up, hearing it from the outside, it's become very straightforward to me what we're doing, but it was not simple <laughs> to get it off the ground, right? It was very difficult to get a lot of growers to even want to work with us in the beginning because that was one of the main concerns was food safety. You know, hey, is this really worth it to us make an extra 40 bucks a ton when we're now, you know, product is now going out in the market that's now going to be tied back to our packing shed and we're losing our chain of custody to you. So, so that was a, a very significant thing. It was definitely a barrier to work with. But the beauty with, with stone fruit is that the, you know, the food safety around stone fruit and the chain of custody from the field, you know, to the pack house, to the grocery store is extremely, extremely transparent and very, very well tracked. So for us, it's taking that same exact process and just owning it ourselves from the packing shed to our plant to then the grocery store. So it really just kind of copying the existing process. And we're just working with our growers to, you know, to have that chain of custody track and have, have their paperwork and stuff in our hands. So, so now it's, it's much more straightforward. It was very, very difficult in the beginning, but talking about some of these kind of like things that nobody would ever really think about until you're actually in the weeds handling the fruit yourself. Stickers are probably our number one issue of the fruit that, that we put in our bags. Probably 95% of the available supply of that fruit is mixed in with fruit that has stickers on it. You know, if you go to the grocery store and you go buy a peach, there's usually a sticker on it. Uh, everybody in the world hates that sticker, except for whoever's managing inventory at the grocery store, <laughs> right? Because the people checking you out at the grocery store, most people don't know the difference between a nectarine and a peach or an organic and a conventional nectarine, right? So, so for us, that's our number one thing operationally that was like, hey, we're losing a ton of value on our product and a ton of value to the grower because we're, for the most part, taking these stickers off by hand. And that's really limiting the supply of fruit we can, we can use. And you know, our, our processor doesn't have an ability to do that and doesn't want to invest the $100,000 to build a machine to take them off. So yeah, there's a lot of those just kind of random things that you just wouldn't know unless you're in the weeds. My greatest strength from day one has been the fact that, you know, I know farming and I know how to grow fruit, but I'm also a truck driver. And so I learned, Hey, there, there's no better way to know what's going into your bag than to just go to the farm and pick it up yourself. Um, and to know the people working at the packing sheds, the forklift drivers, and they'll really take care of you as well. I mean, fruit season is very, very fast, very busy. And there's not a whole lot of time for somebody coming in and messing up your process. It's, there's a very low tolerance for that. So me having the skill set that I do is a very, very high touch with the sourcing. And that's ultimately, that's the number one strength of our brand is that people will actually believe that, you know, we do what we say we're doing, which is upcycling fruit, which there really isn't another brand on the market that, that has that chain of custody and knows the fruit all the way back to the field, like the way we do with our brand. So it's definitely our strength. Yeah. You've created this incredible moat, right? I mean, there are upcycled brands out there doing things with soy flour, upcycled, the rind of fruit or whatever, but no one really is close to the grower that has, like you said, that, that chain of custody, that traceability all the way back to the farm and you're maintaining possession and control of the input all the way until it reaches 
you know, the, the retailer. When you first decided to brand it Ugly Fruit, to put that name on a package, to create a logo, a label, a brand identity, you know, I've seen your social media. You also have a YouTube channel where, you know, you're really educating the consumer about who you guys are and your process and the transparency. This is obviously a huge passion, but you also took a leap of faith in that there was really an opportunity. So I would love to hear two things. What is that market opportunity? And when you decided to go out, what did that look like specifically? Yeah. So, I mean, the market opportunity that I, that I see just in the Valley, we could ourselves have a $250 million company of just using the fruit that's grown in the Valley and making a product out of it and selling it. So there's a very regional opportunity that, that's significant. Uh, but I like to say, you know, wherever food's grown, food's wasted. So there's a global opportunity and really food waste for the most part, the problem is always logistics essentially, right? Getting the fruit from where it was grown, where it was thrown out when it was determined that, Hey, there's, there's not enough value in this fruit to do anything with it to that end customer somewhere in the world, uh, because we grow more food in the world than there is people to consume the food, but there's just all these barriers where there's still hungry people in the world. Right. So, so that's one of those things where it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go into an area that's, Hey, we're throwing out mangoes here. We're throwing out this and, you know, figure out the people, the stakeholders of that area and then develop a solution to solve the logistical problem to get it from point A to point B essentially. So, and it's kind of funny, actually, I'll, I'll take a very small segue here on like the difference of the way I look at things versus the difference the way a lot of people look at things. I was just in Indianapolis at this venture capital summit because we're, we're raising some financing. And it was very funny to me. There's probably 50 kind of people involved in this thing and they bring in smart people to go find problems. And, and it was in sustainability and ag. Hey, we want to solve all these problems that ag has. And so you have all these MBAs and, you know, Columbia this and Harvard that, whatever. And they uh, are making all these formulas and all these ways of researching and stuff to figure out, oh, there's a labor problem in ag or there's a, there's a food waste problem in ag. You know, and so we've developed all these hypotheses. So what do you think? And my answer to them pretty consistently was, well, maybe you should go pick fruit for 30 days. And maybe you should go drive truck for 30 days. And maybe you should go drive forklift for 30 days. And you're probably going to answer all your questions, but you're just not going to get it until you go do that. And it's shocking because nobody wants to do that, right? So you got to be connected to the problem that you're trying to solve. Otherwise, it's not very genuine. And I, I often don't think it actually works anyways. But on our end, when we started this, it was, hey, I'm a truck driver. We're dumping out a lot of fruit. Clearly, that's not cool. I'm eating the fruit as I'm driving. It's obviously edible, right? There's obviously people that would eat it. So where can it go? And so I basically spent about a year figuring out what's been tried and failed, what other growers have, have done, what other programs have done. I mean, there's been everything from, you know, kind of like little fresh slice programs to there's already some, some places drying fruit and using it as disaster relief food. Um, there's fruit donated to food banks. The USDA came in at one point in time and was making ethanol out of the fruit, but nothing, nothing usually sticks. And then the other problem was that nothing has actually solved the problem, right? There's still an increasing amount of fruit being dumped out year over year. Every year there's, there's more and more fruit that that's being tossed the way I see it. So for me, it was pretty simple as I'm a farmer, but I'm always also a military guy. I'm an infantry guy. So, you know, just define perfection and then work back from there and then get to the point where something is simple enough to where it can be, can be tried and solved. I mean, you can execute it at a very high level rather than have all the bells and whistles attached and, and it just not be executed very well. So 
that original leap of faith that you talked about was essentially like, Hey, you know, I think there's two challenges here. One is there's not consumer demand for value added products made from stone fruit. Uh, and the other side of it was operationally and logistically, it's not feasible to make a high quality product at the right price point at the right quantity to solve that logistical problem. Right. So there was kind of two challenges there. And I decided to start with the brand. I love that story of being with these uh, VC guys. And, um, you know, I sometimes like to think about it as there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of money sloshing around and, and there's a lot of solutions looking for a problem. Whereas you have a problem and you're, you're creating the solution. And I think it's great. Um, so we could do a whole nother podcast just talking about investment. Um, but I just really want to close with just a couple last questions. I'm just dying to know. So if you're willing to share, like, which retailers are you in? Where can we find ugly fruit? And, you know, how your sales have been, if, you, if you're willing to share kind of your year over year growth, what your sales projections are looking like. And lastly, Ben, what is your exit strategy? We'll start with the first part of that question, which stores that we're in. So originally it was in some small coffee shops around LA. COVID happened, they all closed for six months. So that was, that was fun. We then uh, kind of pivoted into Whole Foods. You know, a lot of brands, you know, really get their first traction in Whole Foods because they have a, a process where they're very open to trying new things and trying new brands and bringing new products to consumers. So they're a great partner in that regard. Uh, we have a very kind of heavy concentration of a lot of smaller retailers down in Southern California from Gelson's, which does a great job. We're in Ralph's down there as well. So we don't hardly have any distribution in the Valley, which is a little bit of a kind of a thorn in, in our side specifically because it's our backyard, but we're, we're starting to figure it out. We're also in, in REIs. We're not in all of them across the country, but that's a really cool thing for us because there's not tons of food products in those stores, but it's our like perfect retailer that just gets the customer. They just, they get our message and they're awesome to work with. Uh, so we're in REIs across the country. The first kind of, I would say regional grocery chain that we, that we went into that's in kind of like your standard good quality grocery store, but a very, you know, affordable price conscious, but also has a lot of premium products in the store. That would be high V. So they're a cool employee run company in the Midwest. So we we're on shelves there, but our biggest news as of late, uh, we just won a, a supplier competition with Kroger where they evaluated about 1600 different brands. They said, Hey, you know, we want, we want some emerging brands to, to come through our stores and we don't want them to go through the whole process of you, you got to kind of be a Kellogg's or whatever to be able to sustain growth in our stores. So they evaluated 1600 brands and they, they chose, I think five total, but one from each category that they had. Um, and, they, and they chose us from the produce side of it, uh, which is honestly, it's, it's huge because they're the biggest grocer in the United States. I mean, that was the first time our, I've, I've sat in the room with you know, high level executives and buyers and said, Hey, this is our plan. We can't just sell a consumer packaged product like every other product in the store to get to zero waste at these farms. We have to be able to take the fruit that's available year over year. And that changes based on the different varieties and growing conditions and market conditions, make a set of products and then sell them in a very similar manner to the way you would run a fresh fruit program um, that doesn't leave, you know, shelves empty when the cherry crop gets freeze, right? You backfill with something else. So that's huge for us. And that's going to really catapult us to national distribution across the U.S. And we'll be able to run a lot of programs in that store that in those stores, that's exactly what we're trying to do that we've really had you know, some trouble convincing people along the way that, hey, you know, this is how this fruit needs to be sold. And this is what these growers need to make this happen. So that's definitely huge for us. Congrats on Kroger. That's awesome. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're an amazing company. Good Midwestern style way of doing business, which we like here in Central California because we're very similar. So yeah, no, hats off to them. They've been amazing to us. So revenue projections, exit strategy, anything you want to share? Oh yeah. Yeah. So sales, I, I never have any idea exactly what's going on because we project something and it never actually happens. So probably in about a month, I should have a better idea what's going on because the new guy that just started, he's really picking that apart and, and really figuring that out. So ask me that question again in about a month. Well, uh, when you're pitching to investors, a lot of times, you know, that you see that hockey stick growth that says hey, in five years, we're going to do doing a hundred million dollars. I mean, like, just kind of want to get a feel for, I mean, you mentioned earlier in this episode that, you know, there's a $250 million opportunity just in California in this category. What share of that do you think Ugly Fruit can take? I mean, theoretically, we could, we could take all of it. What, what it comes down to is who can provide the best value for the grower. And the way we're setting things up with our plant, it's the only plant that's specifically going to be geared to doing exactly this and to handling stickered fruit. The only source of fruit coming through our plant is fruit that's being thrown out. And so operationally, we're going to be able to do this more efficiently than anybody else and produce a higher quality product and have a better sales program to sell that fruit. So unless something changes, you know, we could capture all of that. But at the end of the day, if, if somebody else comes in with another great plan, that's awesome. You know, this is not a winner take all scenario at all, the way I look at it. But I built our growth based on, hey, operationally plant capacity, here's what we're operationally building into this, the flow of things. And so here's a timeline that we're on. On the velocity side, it's, it's pretty simple. There's, there's two ways to have revenue, right? It's points of distribution and velocity in the point of distribution. So you know, like with Kroger, we're going to move a lot more fruit per store than we would have with some of these other targets that we were looking at, because we're going to be able to run a better program in that store. We don't need as many points of distribution necessarily to like sell the same, if not more fruit. And as far as like the exit strategy goes, I mean, one of the main reasons I started this myself was to get back to farming. You know, I learned as a grower, you know, watching the ups and downs of our farm. If you're not selling your product, you're the first person screwed every time, right? So if the market dips or if anything happens, if you don't have that relationship with your buyer, you're going to get screwed. So to me, this is a way of with our sun-made growing background to say, hey, if I want to keep farming in our family, you know, we got to make a little bit of money here, but I want to build something where I can sell my end product. And so that's very important to me that we're now building here. And that's one reason why, you know, we're now buying some persimmon trees because we now have the relationship in place to sell them fresh. And also whatever 10 or 20 or 30% of that fruit we can't sell, we can now process and then sell ourselves in an upcycled manner. So that's really important for me as far as exit strategy, rather than look at Oh, you know, how are you going to sell your business to make a billion dollars or whatever? To me, it's more of like a lifestyle thing where, you know, I want to exit myself from the day-to-day things that I don't like doing. And the first number one thing I hate doing is checking emails. So as soon as I know I don't ever have to check another email in my entire life, I'm now successful, right? Um, I'd rather be driving tractor. I'd rather be driving truck. I enjoy the sales aspect of it and then talking to people. So um, as long as I enjoy what I'm doing and I can get there, that's really more important to me than go make a billion dollars. Because I mean, as farmers, like we don't ever stop working and every one of us farms to the day you die essentially. So, so what good is it to make this, you know, put all your life into something, sell it. And then you're, then, then what do you do? I mean, just get old and you fill around in your shop and work on some projects that are kind of meaningless. Right. So I, I, I have no intention to stop working actually.
All right. Well, thank you very much to Ben Moore for being on the show. And of course, to Jennifer Barney for making this episode happen. You can learn more about The Ugly Company at their website, which is theugly.company. And I'll link to that in the show notes for you to click from there. Over the holiday break this past month, uh, I was actually in Wyoming and stopped off at a coffee shop and saw right there when I was waiting for my coffee on the counter bags of Ben's upcycled white nectarines for sale. So, of course, I knew this episode was coming up and I had to buy some and I'm happy to say they were delicious. So this is definitely the kind of company that I like to root for. And I hope you will, too, continue to support Ben in his progress. And speaking of companies I'm rooting for, I'm pleased to be joined by a super user of the Acres product for just a few minutes here before we close out our episode. As you might recall from episode 344, Acres was developed by Acre Trader because the team couldn't find an adequate tool for everything they needed for farmland analysis and ultimately for acquisition. Uh, They were using several different tools, uh, free data from various places. But now Director of Farm Operations Rob Moore says Acres is the only tool him and his team need. And he shares why this is so powerful for not just AcreTrader, but anyone interested in farmland investment. Yeah, so I mean, Acres is open at all times on my desktop. When I get a first call from an operator, you know, farmer calls me in central Illinois and says, hey, you know, my landlord just let me know they're looking to offload 250 acres. I'm not really in a position or place where I want to buy it. I'd really love to continue to farm it. I like your program. I'd like to work with you. On that call, I have acres up. So both from location of property, I mean, obviously the navigation was built to be able to quickly find what you're looking for all the way through the you know specific diligence. So obviously your high level diligence, your soil scores, your NDVIs, your elevation, your flood layers. Uh, And then realistically, the way that we think about it on our team, we need a land intelligence platform to find the questions that we have to answer. So Acres has lots and lots of answers, but from an underwriting perspective, what I'm looking for is a clear explanation of the data so I know the question to ask. I mean, so many times when you're thinking about doing diligence and underwriting the opportunity for you know, let's say we're going to bring a $10 million deal to the platform for investors to then come and invest in a, a farmer's business. I need enough data to ask the right questions, right? I need to understand the relationship between the elevation and the flood layer and the crop history. And, you know, realistically, I'm going to use that through the entire diligence process. So my higher level soil scores and DVI elevation and flood are then going to help inform the more detailed layers, which are primarily going to be comparable sales. The historical images basis is a big one for me, Uh, obviously making sure that we understand that our underwrite is conservative and I need to be able to overlay that data and then toggle quickly between it. So a piece of information that we gave back to Acres as it was developing quite a bit was, you know, better data is better than too many layers, right? Having a hundred different bells and whistles is one approach. Uh, It's not the approach that I I think was ideal, at least for our use case. So focusing on making sure that the data was clean and, you know, you can buy data. A lot of different companies are buying data sets that they're then integrating into their tools. I think what was a little bit unique about Acres when it really started to expand and become its own standalone entity was that there was an intense focus on cleaning that data. Right? So you buy your CoreLogic data set, that's just a starting spot. There's so much bloat and so many 
potential pitfalls when you think about large data sets that you're purchasing. Uh, the value for me is the ability to quickly sort and then transpose so I can switch back and forth quickly between layers, see how they interact, and then ultimately that is driving the correct question that I can then take back to the operator to say, hey, you know, I'm seeing some historical issues with flooding in the southeast corner. Uh, a historical image from 2017 shows that it looks like some tile was installed. Can you please get me a tile map and some more context on how that impacted yield history? That's a very specific example of something that would have taken me and potentially, you know, four to six hours to track down and go through all of the data that I need to get there that I'm able to do in a couple of minutes. I appreciate that example. That's really helpful. When you're saying, got to know what questions to ask, you wouldn't have known to ask that question had you not had that at your fingertips. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, if we think about in, in the Midwest, you know, 2019 was an incredibly wet spring. That was a really tough year. There was a ton of prevent plant all the way across the Corn Belt. Uh, you know, generally speaking, that's going to be a really good benchmark year to look at. So if I know that a farm sustained itself through 2019, if it's in an area with a lot of prevent plant, I know that it's probably in a good position. So when I think about how to answer that question, I'm trying to take a step back and say, okay, again, what is this data telling me to go learn more about? And ultimately, it's the same thing with a comparable sale. If I pull up a comparable sale, yeah, sure, that's a good data point as a standalone number. And you can get lists of these from people, and there's people that collect them in all sorts of different ways. What I really enjoy about Acres from an underwriting perspective is when I look at a comparable sale, I'm then going to click over directly into that parcel and see all of the layers directly side by side with the parcel that I'm reviewing. The speed at which I can do that today is, is I, I don't know, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I, I haven't seen anything quite like it. From our perspective, I'm looking to make quick comparisons and ask pointed questions. And I think ultimately this tool has, has given me the ability to do that. That's great. And uh, does the amount of available data vary by location? You know, central Illinois is a, probably a place where there's a lot of comps, perhaps, you know, the uh, central Wyoming, not so much. Yes, is the short answer. In a large data set, there are huge gaps by location, just based on velocity and turnover of land sales, as well as the way that every state reports that information. That's going to vary quite a bit based on what some of the larger data collection companies are able or financially willing to invest the time to, to collect. What's interesting about Acres is outside of the traditional, you go buy a data set, uh, that's actually the the least interesting data to me. What is most interesting to me is the sales history that is being you know, provided by brokerages and real estate agents that want to basically use it as a contributory database where they can then access additional data and provide their data in return, as well as the opportunity to, to look at what the team internally is collecting. So there's an entire team within Acres that does nothing but collect comparable sales. So I have the privilege, uh, you know, just sitting in the chair that I'm in to be able to really dive in on what that looks like as it develops and, and say, okay, man, this is really awesome. There's not a ton of comparable sales data available in the Treasure Valley in Idaho, for instance. So as we use that tool, we as an internal user and any enterprise user can do this. You can save your own locations and put in your own notes. So effectively, on top of having 
the purchase databases, on top of having an internal team that's collecting comparable sales, on top of having third-party users that are putting their information into Acres, I also have the ability to create my own comparable sales database. So regions that we're doing more research on or are more interested in working on in the future, we start building relationships and then are internally logging all of that in our own team account. Uh, and again, that's entirely shareable. So we have a team account that I can look at several of my colleagues' accounts. We can share links within that account. None of that is visible to the public. That is all behind our own firewall. Awesome. Well, um, for you, you know, as a farmland investor or, or, you know, in your capacity as a liaison between farmers and investors, uh, are you able to reduce the amount of tools that you pay for because Acre kind of brings it all into one? Acres is the only tool I pay for. So uh, we were previously, I believe we had three or four subscriptions, annual subscriptions, uh, and then again, a, a robust amount of time put into tracking down local government data and parsing through all of the databases that they had publicly available, but are very, very difficult to mine and use, certainly with the update speed. So one of the biggest issues that we ran into was the speed at which local governments are uploading information into a usable tool, even if they have one. So at this point, the only tool that I'm using for data collection, at least for, for remote land diligence, is going to be Acres. Again, when you're talking about understanding a, a parcel, I, I don't pretend that Acres is going to allow you to understand everything you need to know about a farm parcel. Ultimately, that is going to be something that involves ground truth, that's going to involve yield history, that's going to involve tile maps, that's going to involve understanding the local marketplaces and the people that drive that agricultural marketplace. However, the only remote tool that I'm using today is Acres. All right. Well, as you heard at the top of the show, you can check that out for free at acres.co. It's kind of fun just to hop on there and mess around with. If you've ever played with like Google Maps and you're interested in agriculture, uh, think about how cool that is times like 100 because it's pretty fun. Plus, there's a lot of powerful tools there for anyone who is getting into the farmland investment game. So go check that out, acres.co. And thank you to Acres for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.